morning, friends. Uh, it was just a few years ago that uh, I w- was really excited because my wife had just told me there was a new show with Leslie and Ron from Parks and Rec. Okay, if you're familiar with Parks and Rec, it's a it's a, it's a comedy from a few years ago, and and. We really loved it. And then I, I find out from Amanda, oh, they're doing another show on NBC. This is going to be great, something to look forward to. And uh, the show starts, and I find, I realize that, that my wife has betrayed me. Because over the first ten minutes of this show, I realize this is not like a, a sitcom. It's a reality show. But I didn't know that heading in. Like, the, what I had heard from her, just the snippet she had told me, was like, Leslie and Ron are doing another show. It looks really funny. I was like, great. And I saw, like, an ad for it during a football game. It's like, this is going to be great. And then it starts. And for the first ten minutes, I'm just, wa- I'm like, this seems like reality television. It doesn't seem like these people are acting, you know, and I was just like, but like, no, just stick with it, you know, this is because I had convinced myself this is the case. It turns out, no, it's a show about crafting. It's a crafting competition that they just happen to be hosting uh, because they're well known on NBC, I guess. I don't know. The reason I tell you this is because if we only, uh, if we only take snippets of information and we miss the greater context, then, then we are apt to, to end up confused or to misunderstand what's actually before us. So uh, D.A. Carson, he says it like this. He says, in our reading of the Bible in particular, how this works itself out, he says, a text without a context is the pretext for a proof text. Very simple, right? Okay, you got that? A text without a context is the pretext for a proof text. In other words, if you take uh, just a little snippet of something without looking at what's around it, what comes before, what comes right after, what do the other passages in the Bible have to say, for, say about it, then yeah, you're probably going to come to some strange conclusions that the author did not intend for us to come to. This, this, as an example, you could do this with the Dr. Seuss book, okay? You know the Lorax, you're familiar with that. You could argue... If you're willing to, to proof text, you could argue that the Lorax, it just loves, it's all about capitalism unfettered, you know? Because you could take just one phrase from the Lorax, business is business and business must grow, regardless of crummies and tummies you know. And you could say, wow, the Lorax is, is awesome, you know? It's just about capitalism, it's great, it's like... Okay, well, it might not be against capitalism, but we know that the Lorax is, is about, oh, we need to take care of the, the trees, right? The truffle trees. We need to take care of the things that are entrusted to us, right? This is the real main story. But if you only take a little snippet, you come to the wrong conclusion. Same is true in the text that we come to today. <clears throat> I think uh, pushes back against those among us who might take things out of context for whatever end. Um, But this happens in the scriptures a lot. Imagine uh, if you read Matthew 7 and you read, judge not, lest you be judged. And you come to the conclusion that, you know what, our justice system, we we shouldn't have judges. The Bible says we should not have judges. But in the greater context, we can understand that that's not actually what the author of that passage is saying. 
Context is crucial to understanding it. Why am I spending so much time talking about like how do we understand the Bible and why is context important? Because when you come to this passage in Revelation 2, context is super helpful in understanding what the author intended for us to get out of it. It's helpful in all, all passages of Scripture. But from the very beginning in verse 1, it says, it's a quote, to the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right first of all what's the context that who's talking you know we know from last week if you were here and if you read chapter one that it's jesus is talking jesus is telling john what he wants to write to these seven churches john is having a vision of the lord and in this vision we see like jesus is this all-powerful being right his sovereignty is just clearly seen in the different visuals that that he's given. Say, okay, the context has helped me understand who's talking. And that this is a letter written to the church. Why is that important? That's important because the type of, like, the Bible is broken up into different types of literature. The Psalms are poetic language. The Proverbs are wisdom language. Genesis is, a, is, a, is, is full of several different things, most of which is historic narr- narrative. And you would read a book of poems different than you would read uh, a book of uh, history. When we see that Jesus is speaking to a church, saying, write a letter to the church in Ephesus, it tells us exactly how we should read this, as an epistle. It's just like the other church letters to the churches in the New Testament, like the letter to the church in Ephesus that is Ephesians. So now we're getting more context for this. And he says... Uh, in Revelation 2, he wants to write this letter to the Ephesians. But there's more than just what happens in the chapter before Revelation 2 that helps us understand this chapter and helps us apply it to our church. Which is to say that we not only have this letter to the Ephesians, we also have the book of Ephesians, another letter written to that church. We also have the books of First and Second Timothy, which were written to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. We also have in Acts chapter 19 and 20, which you should turn to right now, we also have the beginning of the church in Ephesus. In fact, of all the churches in the New Testament, Ephesus might be the one that we know the most about. We just have a lot of context for both their struggles and their beginnings. What they're good at, what they're bad at, which Jesus speaks about in this passage. But if we go to Acts chapter 19, I think it's a really helpful context for then understanding why Jesus says what he does about the church in Ephesus. And I'm not going to read through it all. I'm going to summarize it. But you can let your eyes uh, roam around these verses in chapter 19 and chapter 20. We see that Paul goes to Ephesus later on in his missionary journeys and he starts preaching the gospel in the synagogue. He starts preaching the gospel in the synagogue to the Jews but they resist him. So what does he do? After a short time of doing that, he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and he starts talking with people in public about the kingdom of God to people who don't believe in Jesus. He goes to a public place to talk about the things of the Lord with people who may or may not believe in Jesus. It's like his version of unfiltered. Okay, Gospel Life, Jeremy stole this right from Acts chapter 19 and added beer and this is how we have unfiltered. He said, you know what Paul needs? Just one thing he's missing. No, okay. Um, uh, so 
So that this happens, and people start to believe. Miracles are happening. People are coming to know the Lord. So much so, over the course of the, of the two, two to three years that Paul spends in the city of Ephesus, witnessing to people, that a church forms, and it says, everybody in the area, in the region, hears the gospel. There is, there, there is a certain energy to, and love of the lost that drives a witness, the kind of witness that would see a whole region at least hear the gospel. You know, I pray that as long as we're in this building at River Tree, that more and more people in Crystal would hear the gospel. And as we go home to our, where we live in, in, in Roseville and in Marcy Homes and in South Minneapolis and in Maple Grove, that more and more people in those places would hear the gospel. That would be true, just like it was true here in chapter 19. And then, okay, so everyone's hearing the name of Jesus is being honored. And then in Acts chapter 20, we, saw, we see Paul is leaving and he gives parting words to the church in Ephesus. And it's like a beautiful and heartbreaking passage. They're weeping because Paul has told them he's headed to Jerusalem. He thinks this will be the end of his race. He thinks this is where he will be eventually martyred for his work for the gospel. And they weep because they know that they won't see him again. And then we come to our passage today, remembering that, yes, Paul left the church in Acts 20, but we also have his writings to them in Ephesians and First and Second Timothy. And now we see Jesus tell John to write another letter to the church in Ephesus, and this is what he says. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This should not be a surprise to us. That Jesus would say, look, when I look at your church, I see that you are working hard for the kingdom. That you are persevering. That you have good deeds. Why should this not be a surprise? Because context helps us. We see Paul tell the church as he's leaving, tell the elders, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And in when he writes the letter to Ephesians, he says, You were saved not to sit on a lazy boy, but to do good works. We have the context where they've been taught this. And apparently they've embraced it and lived it out in their church. Because Jesus says, I know that you've done these things. He continues on. Jesus continues on. I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. The NIV puts it this way. I know you cannot tolerate Wicked people. And you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Listen to what else Paul says, verse 28 of chapter 20 of Acts. He says to them as he's leaving, Pay careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God. Why? Verse 29. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They've been told to not tolerate the wickedness of people, but to protect their church from false teaching. Jesus says in verse 3 of Revelation 2, You have persevered. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What does Paul write? 
to the pastor of this church in 1 Timothy. He says, indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be happy. No. Will be persecuted. This is what he says to Timothy. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, persevere. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And apparently, as Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus and writes this letter to them, they've held fast to the truth that they were taught. And they've endured hardships, just like they were expected to, as Paul says. Keep going down this. Verse uh, verse 6, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Paul says to them as he leaves in Acts 20, verse 30, From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Isn't the context helpful? We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but again, the context can help us. Scroll down in Revelation. You get to the next, uh, the next letters to Smyrna, but the one after that is to Pergamum. And what happens in Pergamum? The Nicolaitans are referenced again. There's people in their church who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus tells them to repent. So I think we have good evidence that these were a group of people that were in the church of Ephesus leading people away from faithfulness to Jesus accommodating to the surrounding culture. And Jesus hates what they're doing. And he's happy that the Ephesian church also hates what they are doing. Jesus doesn't love everything. I don't know if you're familiar with Brian Regan. He's a, he's a comedian. Um, and Brian Regan has this one skit. He, he talks about being a little kid playing baseball. He's terrible at baseball, but after the baseball game, this is why he signed up, because they got free snow cones. And he goes up to the person giving, uh, doing the snow cone, and they ask him, what flavor do you want? What flavor of snow cone do you want? And he's like, oh, I don't know. They're all good. I like all the flavors. And they said, okay, well, which one's your favorite? And he says, all, all favorites. Many much favorites, he says. That's my favorite. Purple's my favorite. Blue is favorite. All favorites. Jesus doesn't say all favorites. Okay? He doesn't like everything. There are practices that he hates. It says so right here. Those practices are evil. Jesus hates what is evil. So he tells this church so far, he says, you're doing a lot of good things, you're working hard, you're persevering, you're enduring hardships, you hate what I hate. You're discerning Good doctrine versus bad doctrine, you're saying, like, oh, I know this is false. But I've skipped over a part, which is that Jesus also has a sharp edge in what he says to them in verse 4. But I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here's a church that's doing good deeds and they're working hard for the gospel and they're discerning the truth and they're hating wickedness. They're not tolerating wicked people in their midst. 
And Jesus says, that's all good. That's all good. But you lack love. And that lack of love is enough that he will take their lampstand away from them. Lampstand is a common imagery in the Bible for witness, a testimony to what surrounds, like light in the darkness. Um, and this is a church that had such a witness while Paul was there in Acts 19 that every single person in the region heard the gospel. Jesus says he'll take their love, uh, he'll take their witness away if they do not love. And this love that they had at first is the kind of love that shows the world what God is like. You go to a restaurant, you know, if you have little kids, you know this. If you are Josh, you probably do this yourself. Okay, but they give you like the, the mat with the activities, you know. I also like the activities, Josh, okay. Um, and a lot of times the activity mat in the restaurant will have like the dot thing where it's like dot number one, dot number two, dot number three. And if you look at it just like this, you're like, oh, it's just, a, it's just a pile of random dots. But they're numbered so that if you draw the line from one to two and two to three and so on and so forth all the way to 57, eventually you end up with a picture, a clear picture of something else, right? This is, this is the kind of love that, that God is talking about here in this passage, that Jesus is saying that they need the kind of love where it's like, uh, love for neighbor that is sacrificial. Giving to someone in need. That's another dot. Being patient with someone who doesn't deserve it. That's another dot. Giving of your finances to help people is another dot. Showing up when someone is hurting to be a shoulder to cry on is another dot. So that we love and 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 we love. And eventually we give the world a very clear picture as they draw from one act of love to another a picture of what God is like. This is Christian love manifested to show the world who God is and what, what he's done. It's the kind of love that comes from God and then fills us up to overflowing so that others might see what he's like. And the church has to be loving if it wants to maintain its witness in the world. Gospel Life Church. There are, there are churches who in an effort to be loving affirm what they shouldn't affirm. They call good what they should call evil. They tolerate the kind of wickedness that Jesus would say they shouldn't tolerate. And that's a great danger. This church in Ephesus, however, was not doing that. This church in Ephesus, their danger was that they lacked love. And as I look at our church, I say, which of these ditches are we more likely to drive our car into? The one that lacks love or the one that lacks faithfulness? And I think, I could be wrong, but my guess would be that we would drift to the one that lacks love. And if that's the case, then we should heed these words carefully. When we think about who we are as a people, that we, yeah, we, we are a church that cares about truth. We are a church that believes that this, this is inerrant, without error, that it is good. We are a church that believes that Christianity is intellectually rigorous and defensible as a worldview, that it's grounded in history, that there's reasons we believe what we believe, that the resurrection happened, 
that the eyewitness testimonies point to us to it being a historical fact. And it is possible to be a church like that and to lack love. And lack love in such a way that we cannot witness to our community. Imagine with me you were driving on a road and you come to a T intersection. To a T intersection. To the left is love. Take, turn down the left street, you go towards love. Turn down the right street, you go towards faithful, faithful right doctrine. Okay? Which direction would we turn as a church? Here's the truth. Love that does not call sin what it is is not love. But here is also another truth. Faithfulness to right doctrine that does not result in love is not faithful. There is, no, there is no T intersection, okay? Love and faithfulness share the same address. We go down one street. Both are necessary. We hold, we cling to both tightly in our hands. This is not unique to this text. Okay, who wrote Revelation? The Apostle John. Who wrote the Gospel of John? The Apostle John. He might have something else to say about this that really clarifies this. I think he does. In fact, in the 24-hour section before Jesus died, he says two things. He records Jesus saying two things. In chapter 13, love as a witness. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Verse 35, it says this, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Connect the dots to see what God is like. And then just another chapter later, less than 24 hours after Jesus spoke these words, he says this in chapter 14. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Faithfulness and love cannot be separated for the Christian. But we will be tempted to separate them and we will be told we are separating them by the surrounding culture. By the Nicolaitans of our day, we'll be told we're separating them. Because in our world that demands tolerance and calls it love, they will see us as being unloving if we are faithful. My friend Alan expressed this so helpfully. He said, he said it like this. He goes, every, every conversation about morality in the modern world, goes a little something like this. Society says, we want to do X. We want to do X. And the church, the, the true church, the church of Jesus says, well, you're free to do that. You can do whatever you want. Society will say, but you think X is wrong. And the church will say, yes, yes. And society will say, because you want to control us. You want to control us. And she'll say, no, you're free to do whatever you want. And society will say, but you think it's wrong. And the church will say, yes, but that's because we want your ultimate good, which is the definition of love. Society will say, but we want X. We don't want what you're telling us we want. We want X. And she'll say, you're free to do X. You really can. You can go and do X if you want. Society will say now, but we want you to say that X is good. What will the church say? Church will say, we cannot say that. We cannot say that it is good. And society will say, well, you, why do you hate us? We don't hate you. You're free. But we want what's ultimately good for you. 
And because we're united with Christ, we're not just united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we're united with Christ in his opinion. Have you ever thought about that? We're united with Christ in what he thinks about us, about the world, about what's good, about what's evil. If he hates something, we hate something. If he loves something, we love something. So the faithful church has to be willing to be persecuted because the conversation will continue and it'll be society will say then, well, if you won't say it's good, then you are hateful. Society will say, your intolerance cannot be tolerated. Which is kind of ironic. The reality is, as we see early on in this chapter, Jesus does not place the same value on tolerance that our world does. But he places a much greater value on love. True love. Love that wants ultimate good. Well, faithful church has to hold two things at the same time. We have to be able to hold two things, to cling to two things. Number one, we must be intolerant of sin. That includes in our own lives, just for the record. And number two, we cannot use our intolerance of sin as an excuse to be unloving. We have to be able to hold these two things at once because the true church doesn't pick and choose. Jesus calls us to love. We don't get to choose to be unloving. Jesus calls us to, be, to hate wickedness. We don't get to choose whether or not we hate wickedness. You go online and you see, this, like, you see, us, you see the church, people who claim to be believers fail at this all the time, right? Because someone on, in, the, you know, on, in the right wing did such and such, I would blast them on the internet. Because, because someone, someone on the left believes this is true, I'm going to cut off my relationship with them. I'm going to slander them behind their back. I'm going to talk poorly about them. Christians, Christians, brothers, sisters, we do not have that freedom to be unloving. What does faithfulness and love look like? This is how I'll close this morning. I think it, it's going to demand five things of us, if you're note-takers on five things. Um, number one, we must know the truth. We must know the truth so we don't fall for the trap of the Nicolaitans of our day. Number two, we must be compelled by love for the lost because we want their ultimate good. Some of this is easy to diagnose. When we think about people who, who have a different opinion of us, who believe differently than us, who are lost and far from God, do we desire to crush them or to see them one to the gospel? Number three, we must be marked by humility. The kind of humility that allows us to hold fast, intolerant of wickedness, Hating what Jesus hates, but also loving is the kind of humility that says, I'm not better than these people who are doing wicked things. In fact, I am these people who are doing wicked things. I've just been saved. The church needs to be aware of the planks in its own eye, even as we see the specks in someone else's. Number four, we must repent where we have lacked love. Whether that's our thoughts towards people or our postures towards people or how we talk about people behind their back. Number five, we must be ready and willing to be persecuted for hating what Jesus hates. 
There was a study done in the, uh, in the early 2000s. And it, and it looked at the trajectory of like the kind of apologetic questions that non-believers asked of Christianity. So that in the 80s, the common questions were more scientific in nature. Is God real and how can we know? Can we prove it? Is, is the Bible true? And then, and then as the, the decades progressed and there was more postmodernism in America, the questions shifted away from scientific ones to ones of experience and meaning. So questions like, is Christianity going to give me a good life? Why am I here? What should I do with my life? And I think that the primary question has changed again. At least among young people, I see that the primary question that people ask is this. Is Christianity even good? Is it harmful to society or helpful? If you have students, or you are a student, you have social media or you go to a public high school, I would bet that you have heard an argument that Christianity is harmful to the world. This is the kind of questions that lead to deconstruction, things of that nature. These are the five things. How do we do this? How do we know the truth? How do we maintain a desire to share the gospel with the lost? How do we humble ourselves? How do we repent of where we lacked love? How do we prepare to be persecuted if it should come to that? And the answer is here. Only by God's help help. Verse uh, 7 of Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, only if the Spirit works in us. You know? How do we love so that verses, you know, 4 and 5 aren't true of us too? How do we love the Bible tells us, because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Because while we were still sinning, God sent his son to die for us in the ultimate act of faithful love. Because our sin is actually sin. If Jesus was unloving, he could have sat up in heaven, he could have looked down at us, seen us dying in our sin, and he could have said, you know what? They seem to like what they're doing. It seems to be their sin. It seems to be what they want to do. Some of them even identify with their sin. Wouldn't it be hateful of me to go and tell them that they're wrong? To go and die on their behalf for something that they don't think is evil? That's kind of offensive. And Jesus could have sat in heaven and done nothing to rescue us. But he didn't. Because how do we become faithful and loving? We look to the one who is always faithful and always loving, who came down to save us. The answer to how we cling to both of these things is we rely on the one who has clung to us. Most vividly, the one who loved us and was faithful enough to say, yeah, that's Sin is, is bad. I won't tolerate that wickedness. In fact, I'm going to do something about it. And came to earth and died on a tree, painted with blood, so that we could know love. And that that could overflow as a witness to our community about what God is like.
We're going to move into a time of communion now, but first let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make our church both faithful and full of love. Help us not to reject either. Help us not to reject you. Help us to know that you and your spirit will guide us and help us, Lord. We need help in these efforts. And we pray now that as we take communion, we would be reminded of your love and your faithfulness, even as your spirit empowers us to do that as well.